You're listening to Human Rights Talks, organized by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. Hello, welcome to the Human Rights Talks, uh, a podcast of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies at Concordia University. Um, This interview on the crisis in Ukraine is part of a global parliamentary alliance against atrocity crimes, uh, which is a project supported by the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung in Canada. Today, I have the great pleasure of hosting Belkis Ville. She's a senior researcher at Human Rights Watch. And uh, Belkis and her colleagues have uh, interviewed hundreds of Ukrainians who have lost family members in attacks on cities across Ukraine. And it was therefore um, important for us to talk to her about war crimes and what her team has found on the ground. Uh, Belkis, uh, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. It's a pleasure to speak to you. Um, Since the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, how has um, your organization, Human Rights Watch, refocused its work on Ukraine? Do you have a big team on the ground? And how do you deal with what's it like to be on the front line of of the war as a team like this? So um, generally uh, around the world at at Human Rights Watch, our model is that we have one researcher per country. Um, So we, you know, we have one researcher um, covering Ukraine. We have, you know, historically I was the country researcher covering Iraq. Before that, I was I was the country researcher for Yemen. Um, so that's that's our general model, and 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 in that way, we cover about a hundred countries around the world. Um, but of course, when a conflict breaks out in a specific uh, area, then you know one person uh, is 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 simply not enough to cover the situation on the ground. Um, now, since a few years at Human Rights Watch, I'm no longer a specific country researcher. And I'm in a team called our Crisis and Conflict Division. And we are a small group of researchers who essentially step in to support country researchers when a conflict kicks off and when more resources are needed to cover that conflict. And so that's very much the situation we find ourselves in with regards to Ukraine. And so um, at least uh, three members of my team, the Crisis and Conflict team, have been supporting on the Ukraine work. Uh, working very closely with our colleague who's the Ukraine country researcher and really trying to make sure that we are on the ground uh, documenting uh, international laws of war violations when they occur um, and and, and really ensuring that that our um, our research is is capturing what this what this war looks like for civilians. Um, You know, you asked what is it like to be on the ground in Ukraine, I would say. I, I don't uh, like to compare conflicts. Uh, you know, I often get asked by, by journalists about sort of making comparisons mm-hmm. between, let's say, Yemen and Iraq or Iraq mm-hmm. and Ukraine. And I think that's that's quite sort of hard to do. But I but I would say, you know, certain things stand out in Ukraine. One is um, the permissiveness when it comes to moving around. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Ukrainian the Ukrainian government, Ukrainian forces are very supportive of having uh, human rights investigators on the ground documenting abuses. And so um, I am able to move around in Ukraine a lot more easily than I have been in other conflict zones. And, 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 and you know, Iraq and, and Yemen are two that, that come to mind. Um, 
at the same time, of course, you know, the, the work is very difficult. Um, you know, you're, you're meeting people, hundreds of hundreds of people who, you know, had to uh, abandon their homes, uh, part with their loved ones in an instant and, you know, are now on the other side of the country, um, you know, with, the, with their original um, towns and villages under Russian occupation and really no sense of, you know, will it be days, will it be years before, before they can ever return? And, and so you really do see um, incredible um, pain and, and, and suffering in, in, in the experience for civilians. And, and that's not, of course, to mention then, you know, people who've actually lost, mm -hmm. lost their loved ones in attacks. Yeah, um, about that, you, you, you have interviewed people who lived under Russian occupation, and there are still obviously areas where, you know, under Russian occupation, what how have how were people treated um i've read some of your reports and there seem to be cases of torture and obviously killings of of civilians um what is what happened under russian occupation and what is still happening under uh, in areas uh, under russian occupation you know I, I don't think we can paint treatment with with one brush um you have different russian and russian affiliated units in occupation of different areas. And what I, what I can say is there, there really is a difference of treatment between one unit and the next in terms mm -hmm. of how they're dealing with civilians. Some are behaving better, some are behaving worse in terms of compliance with, with, with their obligations under international law. Um, generally, you know, um, those civilians that are seen to be, you know, actively and openly pro-Ukrainian whether that's, you know, being seen in their volunteer activities or they're, you know, more involved in, in kind of resistance activities. Um, they are, you know, in, in the cases that we've looked at, are, they're, they're being detained uh, um, arbitrarily. They're, you know, in some cases being tortured. They're being disappeared from their family members. Um, more generally, we see that um, the Russian administrative system is trying to really fundamentally alter the way that people live in these occupied mm. areas. So people are um, very limited in terms of access to things like the internet and phone connections. They've, you know, they've lost all access, access to Ukrainian internet providers. They have to sign up for new Russian SIM cards, which give them data. And, and so people that I spoke to who fled from these areas say that essentially those uh, that stayed behind, their friends, their family, no longer will be able to communicate them, with them in an open fashion because now with a Russian SIM card, they're, they, they, they're very suspicious that all of their calls, all of their internet traffic will be surveilled. And so they really don't think they'll be able to any longer speak openly. Uh, and, and Russian forces have made it very clear that the aim is to um, change the educational system to a Russian curriculum. Um, and that means among other things, teaching people in the Russian language, not the Ukrainian language, teaching a very different version of history, uh, a pro-Russian version of history. And, you know, the consequence of, consequences of this for people who stay and live under occupation are going to be absolutely massive. I've spoken to many parents who say that, you know, they, they're from impoverished families. They can't afford to flee West and live in displacement. They just don't have the money for that. But at the same time, they say, you know, if I let my, my son or my daughter now stay and graduate high school in the new Russian system, then essentially I am 
ensuring that they will never be allowed to ultimately go to a Ukrainian university and have yeah. a have a future and a career on the Ukrainian controlled side. And so I think parents are an incredibly difficult um, uh, position now to have to make a decision on on what to do. So even if their area is under occupation and in their village or their town, the situation is calm, relatively speaking, isn't coming under attack and the Russian forces are bringing in food and medicine, even then, you know, they're faced with this very, very difficult choice. Mm -hmm. And um, I know you've done some work or considerable work actually on forced disappearances, which you just mentioned. And we've heard also about filtration camps, people being forced to um, go to Russia. Um, what have you found so far in terms of these um, forced disappearances or forced assimilation? Um, what happens to people afterwards? And in terms of perhaps international laws, which ones are um, being violated in this case? So what we've seen um, in this space is, 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 is multiple dynamics. Some instances are where you have Ukrainian forces, armed forces, who are being picked up by Russian forces inside of Ukraine and being taken back to Russia. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean there's an, a violation occurring as long as these Ukrainian forces are being afforded all of their rights as mm -hmm. prisoners of war under the Geneva Conventions. And therefore, um, you know, they, they cannot be, for example, prosecuted for their role simply as armed forces. They should be able to maintain contacts with their families, the international Committee of the Red Cross should be able to visit them. And there are concerns that this, that this isn't happening in, in the way that it should be. Separate to that, in areas that were under occupation, we've seen Russian forces also picking up not just armed forces, but Ukrainian civilians mm. that they claim were engaged in activities, you know, in support of Ukrainian armed forces. And in, in some of these instances, we've seen you, the, the Russian forces actually taking these people with them back to Russia. And they are now sitting in prisons in Russia. Uh, the cases we've investigated are cases of civilians who are being held incommunicado. So they have no contact with their families. They have no contact with a chosen lawyer. Uh, and they um, allegedly are being prosecuted for, for treason and, and, and on other charges, which uh, is fundamentally illegal, is a, mm -hmm. is a violation of the, of the laws of war, a very serious one. Um, And, uh, and, you know, in some cases, some of these civilians have been suddenly returned to Ukraine in prisoner swaps. And this is how we have so much information about where they're being held, because some people who return to Ukraine have been willing to speak to us about their experience in detention in Russia. But sadly, you know, they all said that they were in cells with many, many other people who did not get exchanged back to Ukraine. Um, and, and then you mentioned a, a third aspect, which is Uh, also comes up in this context of, of, of transfer, um, but is, is distinct. And that is um, the uh, forcible transfer of Ukrainian civilians from, it, it's only happening really in one main region of the country, which is in and around Mariupol, um, where people, are be people who are fleeing the fighting and trying to get to safety are being herded onto these evacuation buses that take them into Russian-occupied territory in the Donbass area of Ukraine, areas that have been occupied really since 2014. Um, and then from there, if they have no financial means to, let's say, 
you know, uh, find a taxi, find a driver who can then take them to the Ukrainian side, they then are faced with only one option, which is to get a, a free evacuation bus, but that bus goes to Russia. Mm-hmm. And so these, these civilians are really being given no meaningful choice on where to go. Um, I have spoken to a small number of people who said that they willingly got onto these buses to go to Russia because they wanted to go to Europe. And so they felt that that was their easiest route at that point. So they crossed into Russia and then from there were able to get on trains and and cross the border into Europe and they headed in all sorts of different directions. But many of the people that I've interviewed said they really did not have a meaningful choice and they would much have rather uh, go to the Ukrainian side, but they just didn't have the financial means. And so they had to rely on these um, free buses that took them to Russia. Now, in cases where people are not being given a meaningful choice, um, and this is an obligation that really comes from the, the laws of war and specifically occupation law, an occupying force has to be giving civilians an opportunity to decide where they want to go. And if they're taking them against their will from one territory to another, that can constitute a war crime and potentially a crime against humanity. Do you think um, there were a lot of children among these people who were uh, perhaps forcibly transported to to Russia? Or even people who who had no choice and took children with them, basically? So um, the Russian authorities and the Ukrainian authorities have said that in, you know, several hundred thousand children have been taken to Russia. We don't know much about the the root of these numbers. And the complexity is that in the areas of um, what is known since 2014 as the Lugansk People's Republic and the Donetsk People's Republic, these were areas that, again, you know, came uh, under um, occupation uh, uh, Russian occupation and, and, and the Ukrainian government has not had control over since 2014. Um, a lot of children living in those areas were evacuated by Russian forces to Russia at the beginning mm. of the conflict. And so we don't know how many of the children uh, in those numbers that we're seeing publicly come from the, that group or our other children. We have a report, a, a very long and detailed report coming out on the topics of forcible transfer and filtration. And in that report, uh, we look at what the one instance we know of a group of children that were taken forcibly fr- um, t- towards uh, Russian occupied areas, which is a group of 17 children that had been living in a, in a medical institution. Mm. Um, and, and, and eventually uh, a small number of them, six of them were a- actually able to leave and have reunited in France with uh, their foster family. But unfortunately, we have no idea what's happened to the rest of those children. And they may still be in the Donetsk uh, People's Republic area, or they may be in Russia. Yeah. Um, you and your team have interviewed a large number of Ukrainians. And as you said at the beginning of our discussion, you're able to move around quite freely uh, in Ukraine to do your work. How does your work fit into current efforts to collect evidence for eventual prosecution uh, or any justice efforts that's currently uh, taking place? Do you, do you work with courts? Do you work with lawyers or uh, other investigative teams in Ukraine? So we don't um, have any sort of um, 
formal partnerships, whether it's with law enforcement locally or um, more internationally, and this is the same in every country in the world that we work in, we, you know, we are a truly independent organization and our, our role is independent. And I would say that there's a slight distinction between what we're trying to do with our documentation versus what investigators for a judicial authority are doing. They are trying to gather evidence to build a strong case. Mm -hmm. What we are trying to do is gather evidence to make public as quickly as we can important findings to push recommendations to try to better protect civilians in the context of the war. So we, you know, everything we collect, we publish publicly and we do so as, as you know, as quickly as we're able to verify our, our, our facts. Whereas judicial authorities, they work much more slowly um, and, you know, will potentially sit on evidence for a year, several years quietly before that gets presented in, in, in court. That being said, I can, I can say, um, you know, around the world, there are many instances where Human Rights Watch reports have been used in court proceedings, whether that's in The Hague or elsewhere. And, and, and so I, I would imagine that the research that we're doing and the reports that we're publishing will be informative and helpful to judicial authorities in helping them identify specific geographic areas, specific types of abuses to, to better sort of target their investigations and to know what they should be focusing on. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, we've we've all seen that the pictures of Mariupol and completely destroyed cities, and um, we've also obviously been for a long time looking at what happened in Syria, where the where Russia helped the Syrian government's uh, government, and they destroyed entire cities over there. What is? I mean, we know that targeting civilian infrastructures such as hospitals, schools, universities. It's a war crime, but why is Russia um, targeting civilian infrastructure so much and destroying entire cities? It's and what's the impact on Ukrainians that you have spoken to? You know, I think it's it's very hard to answer that question when it comes to Mariupol, and that's because you know the city uh, early on in March was completely cut off from internet access and from, from the ability to make phone calls from the inside. And since then, we've really gotten small pieces of information from people who fled the city, but we, we really don't have a full picture of what these attacks have looked at, what the targets of Russian attacks potentially were in the city. It's very hard to, to, to give you a, a clear response when it comes to Mariupol. But I can speak to other cities, cities that we've had much more access to because Russians were attacking the area, for example, but then pulled out, whether that's Kiev, the capital, or Chernihiv, um, or Kharkiv, uh, mm. Ukraine's second largest city. And there, what I would say is the these um, attacks do look very different to, to Syria. And, and I've, I've spent quite a bit of time looking at Russian and Syrian attacks in the context of Idlib. Um, you, know, you know, there, there was a, a dynamic we saw where uh, Russian uh, air support was being used to specifically target civilian infrastructure, marketplaces, hospitals, schools, so that the civilian population decided on its own to flee that area and that then allowed Syrian forces to walk into empty cities and take them uncontested. Hmm. And that was really um, 
a core aim of the operation. And, it, and, and so intrinsic to that was targeting civilian infrastructure. In Ukraine, what we've seen, and again, uh, I have to say, I, I, I won't categorically be able to say much when it comes to Mariupol, but in the other areas that we've looked at, that's not what's going on. Mm-hmm. And, and you have to keep in mind that Russia uh, has an aim in, in many areas to come in and to occupy those areas with the civilian population remaining. They have no interest in clearing the civilian population out. And, and again, the dynamic in Mariupol might actually be different. But, but elsewhere, areas that they're trying to occupy, you know, they, they actually have come in and they've secured the hospital and made sure that the hospital is working so that their own soldiers can get treatment. Mm-hmm. The reason in these areas that you see so much damage to civilian infrastructure is really not because... In, in, as far as we can see, there's evidence that the Russians have been trying to target civilian infrastructure, but instead, it's that the um, it's that the the weaponry that the Russians are using is in so many cases fundamentally imprecise. Mm-hmm. They are using munitions and firing munitions into civilian populated areas that are fundamentally indiscriminate. And there we're talking about things like cluster munitions. We're talking about weapons with wide area uh, explosive effect. So that means weapons where even if they, in, they are hitting the intended military target, they end up having repercussions in the surrounding area, including on civilians, if civilians are in that area. So I think that's really why we're seeing such large levels of, uh, of destruction. You know, in, in a lot of the cases that we look at, there might be some kind of military target in the area. But the attacks still might be unlawful because, you know, civilians are being killed, civilian infrastructure is being damaged because of the choice of weapons that was used. Mm-hmm. For, I mean, you've, you've spoken to a large number of Ukrainians. And one of the things that we've noticed is that, you know, Russian, the invasion is no longer really making headlines every day. Um, and one of the aim of what project and of this podcast is also to um, make sure that people don't forget. Um, what, um, what do Ukrainians expect from foreign governments and, and legislators, including be it related to justice and human rights or holding Russia accountable? Sure, there's the issue of weapons, but we, we, we will, here we, we really want to talk about how do we hold Russia accountable? What do Ukrainian, Ukrainians want? Um, I, I'm not sure I'm the best person to answer that being, you know, an, a non-Ukrainian myself, you know, I can speak very anecdotally about, you know, individual people that I've interviewed who lost a loved one in an attack or who lost their home and their farm. And they all are asking the question of, of, of as you said, what can be done to ensure that the soldiers involved, the commanders involved mm-hmm. are held accountable and and you know they speak very much in terms of um you know formal judicial processes so they want their day in court they want to see that soldier or that commander um uh, you know in, in standing standing in a courtroom and answering for what he did and why he did it um and and then and then for for there to be appropriate penalties um the question I think that 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 faces the international community is really how best to potentially achieve this. Um, you know, there, there's of course one complexity, which is when you talk about those that are in the higher um, positions of command. You know, 
even if uh, there were arrest warrants issued for them in certain countries, uh, whether in Ukraine or elsewhere in, in Europe, the US or beyond, you know, would authorities be able to detain these individuals, um, you know, or, or will they simply, you know, cease their international travel to countries where they're at risk of being detained? Um, and, and, and of course, you know, in, in Ukraine, you do have some soldiers, Russian soldiers that have been captured in the context of the battles. Um, they are sitting in prison. And then in those cases, you know, is there a, a helpful role that can be played by international investigators to help Ukrainian authorities build the strongest possible cases against them? And there, you know, it's really about um, developing a better understanding for what the Ukrainian prosecution service needs uh, or needs more of uh, to ensure that it can do the best job possible to hold, you know, um, fair trials, transparent mm -hmm. trials uh, that do hold those uh, responsible accountable. And what do you think, I mean, you're, you're in Europe, I'm in, in Canada, what do you think, I mean, Uh, Human Rights Watch has issued a number of calls to government leaders. What do you think parliamentarians could do, legislators, to perhaps put more pressure on, on governments to do more for Ukraine? What, what are you seeing, for example, in, in, in Spain at the moment? Well, as you said, I think, you know, one, one key um, push that needs to come within governments uh, of all countries uh, that have been at least initially supported to supportive of efforts to try and ensure that you know civilians are better protected in the context of the conflict for them not to forget as you said you know the headlines have moved on and there's a real risk that another conflict will will pick up somewhere else and then you know attention spans of governments are sadly very short if there doesn't seem to be kind of an immediate threat to that country and so it really is going to be key to ensure that attention on Ukraine and on the situation in Ukraine continues, even though it's, it's, it's less present in the headlines. And, um, and that, that support, you know, and, and there are multiple uh, countries uh, across Europe um, and Canada and the US that are supporting um, teams of investigators mm -hmm. uh, to help support the Ukrainian uh, prosecution team, but also to, to conduct their own investigations for potentially their own legal proceedings. And it, it, it's really important that that level of commitment doesn't go away and that, and that persists because, you know, justice and accountability, these are projects that take a very long time and they're, you know, not things that one can achieve very quickly. But, you know, I think, I think with the right commitments in place, we could see more people being held accountable in the context of this conflict than historically uh, many others. Sadly, you know, the, the, the interest in ensuring accountability that we see in the context of Ukraine, which is very positive, mm -hmm. we haven't seen when it comes to so many other conflicts, mm -hmm. whether it's Yemen or, or Iraq um, or to a certain extent, even Syria. And so, you know, given that there is that interest, you know, we really hope that um, countries that have made commitments to support accountability efforts continue to do so. Yeah. No, I, I agree. And I think one of the reasons the invasion happened is because we did nothing for other countries in other cases. Uh, and perhaps one final question. Um, you said that the point, I mean, one of the aims of, of your work is to make public um, uh, reports uh, kind of immediately so then we can act now. Um, is there, are there certain crimes that perhaps or certain 
Yeah, crumbs that, that, that Russia has committed that perhaps we aren't paying enough attention to or something that you would like people to focus on more that perhaps is not making a, a lot of the headlines. Well, you know, I started out by mentioning a few um, issues to you that um, are harder to document because they're happening in areas that are under Russian occupation now, areas where, you know, those still living there have minimal ability to communicate with the outside world uh, and that have gotten relatively little attention. So issues like the one I mentioned around the change of the of the school curriculum, mm -hmm. there we're talking about, you know, fundamentally changing the culture of an entire community or region of the country, changing it to a Russian culture from a Ukrainian one. I mean, these are these are um, uh, policies that are going to have such significant consequences. And I think it's it, it would be really important for um, human rights groups, uh, the, the media, to try and start um, doing more to ensure that we have a better understanding of what's happening in these occupied areas as the situation develops and really thinking about what, um, what kind of, you know, policies, recommendations we can make that mm -hmm. really are centered around civilians and, 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 and the plight of civilians uh, and really taking into account the difficult choices that they're facing. You know, when, when, when a Ukrainian national is choosing not to leave an occupied area, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're pro-Russian or that they're happy with living under occupation, but it might be that, that they're facing very difficult circumstances and they don't see any other option because whether it's their financial and uh, their, their financial situation or you know they might have a family member who who can't leave easily because they have a disability or, or are elderly or, or whatever else um, and, and I think a lot more thinking needs to go into ensuring that we do everything we can to try and uh, help uh, the, these people that are that are sort of left behind so to speak. Thank you so much, Belkis, for, for coming on to the show um, today. Um, to our audience, um, again, Belkis Bele is senior researcher at Human Rights Watch. And um, Belkis and her team have done absolutely fantastic work uh, in Ukraine. So I encourage you to read their reports. Belkis, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me today.